Hello, my lovely people. Welcome to Staff Room Stories. I'm your host, Emily Aslan, and I'm here to bring you the topics that Australian teachers are talking about behind their closed staff room doors. Join me each episode, usually with an incredible guest, to explore the things we're talking about, as well as the things that we ought to know. Enjoy. Welcome to the staff room, my friends. This week comes with a bit of a content warning. We are discussing the mental, emotional and physical health and care of gender diverse and trans young people. Please be protective of your own mental health. I'm sure you've heard and read a whole lot about our trans community members in recent months. Some of it will have been good, solid information and some of it will have been misinformation at best and outright lies at worst. As teachers, we are ever increasingly likely to have one or more gender diverse or trans students in our classes, and that does include primary teaching as well. It's a topic that comes up periodically in our staff rooms, so I wanted to get really solid, accurate information to share with you. I reached out to the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne because they have a world famous gender service for children and teens. I was put in contact with Dr. Kate Rayner, who was very keen to clear the air on some misconceptions that she sees quite often, and also to help us teachers learn some of the realities of our gender diverse and trans students. Dr. Kate is a paediatrician who works at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne with the Department of Adolescent Medicine. As part of her job, she provides care for trans and gender diverse young people through the RCH Gender Service. The RCH Gender Service provides individualised, family-centred care to children and youth up to the age of 16 years. The service includes medical specialists such as paediatricians and endocrinologists, mental health specialists such as psychologists and psychiatrists, nurses, a research team and, of course, amazing admin staff. The Royal Children's Hospital Gender Service aims to improve the physical health and well-being of trans and gender diverse young people. So with this in mind, remember throughout this episode that Dr. Kate is working with the most up-to-date research and medical care for our kids. So let's jump in. Welcome, Dr. Kate Rayner. Thank you so much for being here today. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Emily. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So the story that we have from the staff room, and this is um, a bit of a story that is, I feel like, more common than it should be. So I overheard a teacher talking about how they don't believe that students, particularly high school students, should be trans was the words that they used. They seem to have a lot of misconceptions about what it means to be trans. And they also believe that you know, children and teenagers are too young to know themselves and to make that decision about themselves. So I would love to start out with what does it actually mean to be trans? So that's a great question to start with, Emily. So being trans or or being transgender is, first of all, importantly, just a normal part of human diversity. So being trans or transgender, it's not a mental illness. And that's something really important to remember. And what what it actually means to be trans or when you think of us as professionals, what we think of when we say trans or transgender, that means that your gender identity 
and that's the kind of innermost concept of who you are, you know, so whether you're a boy, a girl, whether you're both or whether you're neither. So it's when your gender identity doesn't match with the sex assigned to you at birth. And what I mean by that is when the baby is born, someone assigns a sex to them and that's usually based on the external genitalia that they see. And so being trans is when your gender identity doesn't match with that. We use trans or transgender as a kind of umbrella term, but within that, those in the trans community will choose their own term or their own language to describe themselves. So they might say they're trans, they might say, you know, there's people who are non-binary, there's agender, but also a lot of the young people I see say to me, you know, I'm just a boy or I'm just a girl, and that's their gender identity. And that might not match what's on their birth certificate. That's right. That's right. From a medical or scientific standpoint, what age can a child or a teenager know that they're not the gender that they're being referred to? We see children and young people up until the age of 16 and and really you can present or or realise you're trans at, at any age. So if you speak to my adult colleagues, they see adults for the first time who are able to articulate their gender identity and their wishes for themselves. And so at the Royal Children's Hospital, which is where I work at the gender service, we see right up into the age of 16 now. And and we have referrals for children as young as, you know, two, three, right up until the later teenage years. The the vast majority of the children we see, so about 95% of them are eight and above. So it's a smaller proportion that we see younger, but there's no age, there's no age cutoff where we say you have to realise by a certain age, you know, that you're trans or you can't decide until a certain age that you're trans. That's not really how it works. So, you know, I've, I've seen very young people who are four or five who are really insistent on their gender identity and they're consistent with it across settings at home and at kinder and this is who they are. And we also see a lot of young people who are about to go through puberty and they might have just not felt quite right but not been able to articulate it. And it's when those physical changes of puberty are happening that they realise that they're trans or they might realise that this isn't this is what I want, something's not right, and then go through that kind of journey to understand what's going on for them. So th- there's definitely not an age criteria or cutoff where we say, you you know, you can't know until this age or you have to know at this age to be trans. We see it across all all ages. Okay, cool. So there's sort of, I guess, this misconception that kids are too young and they can't possibly know these things about themselves or that they shouldn't know that there are options other than being a boy or a girl. Mm. And so what I'm hearing you say is that until we tell them otherwise they sort of have these thoughts and feelings anyway and I guess it's just having a a family that's supportive enough to listen to that and help the child follow through with that in an age-appropriate way. Most definitely so we know that when trans and gender diverse young people are supported and affirmed in their gender identity that their well-being improves so that includes support for them living socially as the gender they identify with. And then when they're older, that might include, you know, further support, so medical support. I think people worry, there's this misconception that we're doing things to children and they can't say what they want. And that's a real myth. So first of all, 
there's actually no medicines that are given to children and young people before they hit puberty. So if a young person is referred to our service and they're prepubertal and if they're less than eight, they don't even see the medical doctor. So they see a psychologist or they see our psychiatrist and the young person and their family get the support and the time to talk about, you know, what it means to them and their gender identity and how best they can be supported. And often in the pre-pubertal years, that includes things like using their preferred name, using their preferred pronouns, letting them dress how they want to. So we talk about letting them express their gender how they want to. And we might call that, say, social affirmation. So really that's the support that children get. And it's not until a young person is about to go through puberty that we think about medical options and we only use those if there's distress there. So I think earlier on I said being trans is is not a a mental illness, being trans is, you know, a, a normal part of human diversity, but gender dysphoria, that real distress, that can be really difficult for a young person. So when they're experiencing that distress, which is often at the time of puberty, we think about using some medicine to stop that happening. So what does gender dysphoria mean for those people that might not know? Gender dysphoria, so dysphoria, the term means distress. And so it's this real distress that they feel because their body or their sex assigned at birth is not matching with who they actually are. So we talk to young people about what that means for them. So they might have dysphoria related to you know, their chest. So if their gender identity is male, but they're going through a puberty, which is being driven by, say, estrogen, they might be getting development of their breast, and we often might use the word chest, that might create a whole lot of distress for them. And so we talk about those really difficult things, like how are you feeling, how are you feeling about your body, what's causing you to feel pain at the moment. And we know that trans and genderized young people have much, much higher rates of mental health difficulties, which includes anxiety and depression. It's about 10 times higher than the general population wow. at the same yeah. age. So it's, yeah, so it's much higher. But we also know that if we provide affirmative care, then the actual rates of those mental health difficulties approach that of the general population. It is something that we can help them with. That's why we're here. That's why there's a gender service, because we know there's something we can do to help them. So I guess to those people that might be having that sort of misconception that gender diversity is some sort of a mental illness because of, I guess, the symptoms and the way that someone is presenting, it's the fact that these people are not receiving the support and the care that they need that's causing the mental distress rather than them not identifying with the gender assigned to them at birth. Most definitely. So there's nothing pathological. There's nothing wrong with being trans. And it's not that they're not trans because they're depressed. They're not trans because they're anxious, not at all. But this is a group that is discriminated against, that's marginalised, that's exposed to things in the media said about them and that our politicians say about them. That leads to poorer mental health. And as a gender service, we can support them in affirming their gender. But I think more broadly, we're talking about schools today. That's another really great way that we can support these young people and make them feel safe. But, but you're right. Um, the, the kind of rates of, of anxiety and rates of depression are not inherent in their transness at all, at all. Yeah, so it's, it's more the way that they are being treated by society or expect to be treated 
that can cause those sorts of those anxious feelings yeah. and the depression rather yes. than the transness yes. itself. Yes. And if trans and gender-based young people are supported and affirmed in their gender identity, they have healthy, fulfilling, happy lives. And, and we know that from research, but we also know that by seeing our you know, young people through the service, finishing year 12 and having relationships and going to university or pursuing careers that they want to pursue. So trans and gender diverse young people can have really happy and fulfilling lives if we can affirm them in their gender and support them. So what, what would happen if a, a child or a young person was identifying themselves as trans at home? What steps would the family take to then eventually feed through to your clinic? So to come to the gender service at the Royal Children's Hospital, they first need to get a referral from their GP. So I would say to the parents listening, if your young person comes to you and says they're trans, say, how can I help you? Because I think if we kind of listen to our young people, they'll often show us what they need and then once they're referred uh, to our service then they go on a wait list and, and unfortunately the wait at the moment is is long and there are resources and there are support groups online and there are some great websites as well that parents can look at while they're waiting to see us such as Transcend is a really excellent website and the RCH gender service webpage has a lot of links on there that parents can look at while they're waiting, schools can also be proactive and supportive. Once they get into the service, they have an initial appointment and that's an appointment where they meet one of our you know, clinical nurse consultants or one of our residents and they get to tell us their story and we can work out how we can best support them. So it's really driven by the, the child or the teen themselves as to what Definitely. they feel like they need. Yeah, so, so all of our care is individualised. So when I have my first appointment with families, I get a lot of questions of what age can we do this and what age can we do this? And I say, oh, well, there's, there's no rules. We talk about it and it's individualised and we work out what's going to be best for you. So, so our care is really individualised for each and individual person that we see. And it's also kind of young person and family centred. So we speak to the young person, we speak to the parents we go on this journey together with them if the um, young person is less than eight so they see a psychologist or a psychiatrist and they have that kind of talking support and and support in terms of what they need around maybe social affirmation so helping them you know, have the haircut that they want or the wear the clothes that they want once they reach the age that they're starting to go through puberty they also would see a paediatrician or an endocrinologist. So we've got lots of different people on our team. And then we'd start to have a, a chat about whether something like puberty blockers would be a benefit to them. And what do puberty blockers do? And when when would you use them as opposed to not using them or recommending yeah, them, I suppose? Question. Yeah. So we use puberty blockers in young people who are, just at the early stages of puberty. Doctors have a way of categorising how far through puberty you are. And so if somebody is just starting puberty and they're having distress related to those changes, then we can use puberty blockers to put a pause on those physical changes. So what a puberty blocker is, is it's a medication that's given that actually puts a pause on pubertal changes. So it stops those hormones being made that cause the body to change. So it stops things like, you know, breast development or periods or changes in voice. They're completely reversible. 
So we've been using puberty blockers for decades, actually, in young people who've had early puberty. So some people start going through puberty a lot earlier, so seven or eight, and puberty blockers have been used for that group for since, since the 80s. And so they're, they're safe, they're fully reversible, there's no impact on fertility long-term. And if you choose to stop puberty blockers, you'd stop them and your body would just restart puberty. Like it would just continue. Yeah. So it's a, it's a pause. And the reason we, we use them is so that that young person can have some time to talk to their psychologist or psychiatrist and their paediatrician and to explore what they want for their gender and for their body without that increasing distress associated with the dysphoria of their body changing in a way that they really don't want. So that's the group that we use puberty blockers for. And we really try and use it in that beginning stages of puberty. So we're trying to prevent changes that we can't reverse later on. So it's basically just like buying more time before any further decisions are made and reducing exactly the, right. the emotional distress. That's exactly right. So it's something that we can do that is completely reversible, that buys us some time, that allows the young person to you know, think and talk with their therapist and with their family and to ask all the questions that they want to ask and to really think about what they want for themselves before any further decisions are made. And then I guess the uh, logical step after that is if someone has already started puberty or, you know, is a bit older, is that where something like hormone therapy would come in and, and what's the impact of that? How does that work? So we, we call it gender-affirming hormone treatment or gender-affirming hormone therapy. And so that's the use of either estrogen or testosterone. And so that can be started in a young person who has never had blockers. And it can also be started in a young person who has had blockers. And you're right, it's started later on. So we use gender-affirming hormones in young people who have been really consistent and persistent about their gender identity and know what they want. And we spend time beforehand talking to them about what it means so we go through what actually is the medication, what does it involve, how does it change your body, which changes are permanent, which changes are reversible. So there's a process that goes on behind it. And we also talk with their parents. And I don't want to give you a specific age that we start. It's usually kind of mid to later adolescence that it started. And at the moment, we need the consent of both parents to start testosterone or estrogen. So at the moment, parents are always involved in those conversations. But we know that adolescents are actually very capable of giving consent and telling us what they want with regards to their future and the use of hormones. So they're really actively involved. And, and part of that process is making sure they can give us consent and, and informed consent. So they you know, really know what they want and tell us. If we do start hormones, they're usually something that if you're getting benefit from them, you didn't take them for a long time. You might take them for the rest of your life if you yeah, want right. to. So it is a, it's a commitment that they're making. Yeah. And what yeah. I'm hearing is that like none of this is a snap decision that they walk into the doctors one day and, and get surgery and that's it. No, I think that's another myth that you can walk in to the clinic and walk out with some hormones or you can decide that you want to have surgery and it happens the next day. I think a lot of these young people have been thinking about this for a long time and they've been thinking about themselves for a long time. 
and it takes bravery to go to your GP and get a referral and then you wait years to come to the clinic and then you have an appointment and then you wait again. It's a real commitment even to, to get here and to get through the process. And there's actually barriers to access. So we would love to be able to provide better access to all the young people who want to come here. And at the moment, the wait list is, is too long. But, but yeah, you're right. That kind of preconception that it's not a rigorous process and we don't take it seriously, that's wrong. And the young people who come and see us, they, they really do take it seriously. And a lot of them come and they've already done a, a lot of research, like good, proper research, and they've really thought about it. I think we have to also respect their right to say what's best for them and go on that journey with them. Yeah, I think another another misconception that I've heard along those lines is that it's a bit of a trend, you know, like, well, my friends are trans, therefore I'm going to be trans. And I'm sure that your answer to that is going to be absolutely not. No. So uh, there's there's definitely more acceptance, mm. um, particularly in the younger generations of being trans and gender diverse, and that's wonderful. And we know if we look at you know, research, it would say that around 2% or so, so 2 to 3%, of young people would identify as trans or gender diverse. So it's higher than previously thought. And, and part of the greater awareness or, you know, the greater number of young people that we're, we're hearing saying they're trans and gender diverse is because of that acceptance and also because of the visibility. Mm. So they can see that, you know, there are other young people like them. And in the media, if we're looking at famous people, there's famous trans people now that they can see and they can see that they're not alone. And there's also much greater awareness of the services available to them. So they can see that they feel this way, but look, here's a service that can help me. And so they might be more willing to speak up because of that. And I think it's also important to remember that not all trans and gender diverse people want hormones or want surgery. So we, we might be getting a huge number of referrals but only a proportion of those are actually going down that path of either blockers or hormones. So some people might choose to socially transition, but they might not want to medically transition. So they might choose to use their preferred pronouns, but they don't want to have any medicine or they don't want to have any surgery. So there's no, there's no one way to do it. That's why I say care is individualised. So I think that, yes, we're, we're more aware now of how common being trans and gender diverse is and there's greater acceptance, particularly young, the young people, which is wonderful, but it's definitely not a trend. So, and I know I'm repeating myself, but if you look at what these young people do to come through our service, they've spoken to their family, they've spoken to their GP, they've had their initial appointment, they've waited years and then they've spoken to their paediatrician, they've spoken to their psychologist. So this is a group of young people who are really sure about what they want and what's good for them and whose families and whose medical professionals, you know, who are caring for them are also really sure that this is in their best interest. Yeah. So again, I guess reiterating the fact that this, none of this is a snap decision. You don't just wake no. up one morning thinking, oh, I'm trans, I'm going to go on medicine today. It's a real... Yeah. It's a real slog for these kids. <laughs> it, it is. And I think that the difficulty is that for some of these young people, it, it really is very clear to them that this is what's best for them. That weight actually can be detrimental. So we ask our questions and we 
have our psychologists who go through their assessment process. But for a lot of young people, they, they say, look, I'm just a guy. Like, that's who I am. You that's know, it. just help me yep. be who I am, you know. So it, it can be as, as simple as that for the young person, but it's still a kind of difficult pathway for them to navigate to get where they want to get to. Cool. I guess one question, I don't know if you'll be able to answer this, but a lot of the anti-trans rhetoric seems to center around this idea that they will regret it later and that it's, you know, it's not really who they are. It's just a kid going through a phase and that if they try to make any of these decisions, they're going to regret it later in life. Is that something that you would see through the clinic or is that just another misconception? The risks of um, regret, so so we're talking about regret with regards to, say, medical transitions, so taking medicines and your body changing and then regretting it. So those risks are very low. So if you look at um, research, because there's research on this, so if you look at research of the young people who have gone through a process of being seen by a multidisciplinary clinic, so that's a clinic where they might see a medical person like a paediatrician or endocrinologist, as well as a mental health person like a psychologist or a psychiatrist. If you look at that group of young people who've gone through that process and then they've had medical affirmation, so either gender-affirming hormones and then surgical affirmation, the risk of regret is about 1%. So it's very low. And then if you break that down further and you ask them, what, like why, why, why do they regret the decision? A lot of it is not that they have changed their gender identity. It's that there might be regret around the social difficulties of transitioning in the world at the moment, you know, and navigating those relationships and explaining themselves. So we know that the risk of regret is low. And, and that's because there are no permanent things that are done to young children they're not started until kind of mid to late adolescence. And by that stage, gender identity is consistent. Yep. So yeah. it's something they've been knowing in themselves for a very long time. And by that point, it's it's just the, the natural next step of their process. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, I guess to wrap it up. So coming back around to the teachers in schools who, you know, obviously we're seeing a lot more students come through with gender diversity or trans students what can us as teachers do to help support them in the school environment knowing of course that we don't have influence over their home environment but within the school environment how can we best support these students there's so much you can do there's so much and we know that schools are a real protective factor uh, when it comes to reducing rates of depression and anxiety in young people And we also know that young people learn and thrive when they feel safe. So there's so much schools can do. And there's actually been research looking at uh, the experience of trans and gender diverse young people in schools. And there's a large proportion of them, I think it's around 70%, felt unsafe at school because of their gender diversity. So I, I think there's so much that schools can do to make them feel safe and affirmed. Firstly, it would be policy. So it's about having ingrained in your school inclusive policy. So that can be around uniform. And it really really needs to be quite explicit. So I've had young people who tell me for a full year they only wore the PE uniform 
because that was the most gender you know neutral uniform that they were allowed to wear yeah because it's often you know this is the boys uniform and this is the girls uniform and that's it yeah yeah exactly exactly so policies around uniform having a think about toilets so schools might think they're being supportive by saying here you can use this staff toilet but if that toilet is so far away than all the other classrooms and it's actually impractical to use it it doesn't help so it's actually about thinking about how practically you're going to be able to support this person in terms of bathrooms and toilets that they use where can they get changed where do they want to get changed getting the language right as well so using preferred names and having all teachers use preferred names so it's not that when you're in this class with this teacher they're affirming and they're supportive but when you use in this class they actually use your old name or your dead name because that's really jarring so having a policy or system in place so that preferred name is used across the board as well as preferred pronouns I think for young people who might be in the process of actually transitioning whilst at school, it's listening to the young person. So how do they want to do it? So every young person is different. So I've had some young people say that they want to have the day off school and they want the teachers to tell the rest of the class and then they'll come back. Whereas I had another young person who wanted to stand up in the class themselves and say, hey, I'm trans, this is me. You know, I was like, great, go for it. So they all want to do it a different way. And sadly, I've looked at young people who've actually changed schools because they've had such a negative experience. They don't feel like they can stay there anymore. So they've actually changed schools in order to transition socially. So I think if a young person comes to someone at the school and says, I'm trans and I want to socially transition, ask them, how can we support you? It's as simple as that. How do you want to do it? We'll support you to do it. And, and then follow through. Them. Exactly right. So, so follow through and, you know, and have someone who makes sure that happens. What else? I think there's so much schools can do. Being visibly supportive. So if you're a young trans person, your initial thought might be that the school is not going to be supportive. So if you have a family that may not be understanding or supportive, or if you've been reading the papers recently or watching the TV, you might have this assumption that not everyone's going to be supportive of you being trans or gender diverse. And so you might assume that of your school as well, unless the school is visibly supportive. So having posters up, supporting your young people to start up a support group for LGBT young people, those sorts of visible supports, proactive supports are really important. I'm thinking of all the the things that the young people have told me about schools. Um, I guess guess the key thing is to to ask them and then follow through. Ask them and then follow through. And sports events, Mm. so, and, and camps, have a think about those because they're so gendered. So can you have events in your sports days that are not gendered? So how can you make them inclusive and then make that part of the policy year to year? So there's so much, there's so much that can be done in schools to support these young people. Even I guess in language, like I know, particularly in primary school, your teachers will just say boys and girls. And then I stand there and think, well, some of them might not be either. Or they might be both having boys versus girls in competitions. And then there may be that one kid that's sitting there going, well, I'm in the wrong group. And people sometimes feel anxious when they Mm. hear that. And for some reason, there's a resistance to it. And it's really easy once you start, you know, hi, everyone. Yeah. (laughs) Hi, my amazing scholars. You know, there's so many different words you can use and fun ways that you can greet your class that isn't gendered. All right. Thank you so much. 
Kate, for joining us today and to give us all this information that I think a lot of us may not have been exposed to before. Oh, you're welcome, Emily. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. (laughs) All right. Thank you. If you'd like to continue the conversation, come and join us over on Facebook in the group called The Teacher Community by Staff Room Stories. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Staff Room Stories. You can also check out the blog at www.staffroomstories.com for full podcast episode transcripts, as well as articles about a whole range of other staff room topics. If you liked what you heard today, I'd love for you to tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast. And if you would leave me a review on whatever service you're listening through, this helps others to find us. Thank you for gifting me some time out of your day. I hope the rest of it treats you well.